Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I talk to someone who knows what it's like to live life on the road. First off though, I want to introduce you to another podcaster. Every now and then I like to share the love and let you know about another podcast to add to your playlist. And this time, it's Jules Hannaford's Hong Kong Confidential. Jules, tell me a bit about your show. What is Hong Kong Confidential all about? So Hong Kong Confidential is a show where I interview interesting and exciting and unique people from Hong Kong or visitors coming to Hong Kong. And they share their wisdom, their insights and their stories with me. And it's been amazing. I've met such a variety of different people and they've got great interesting stories or experiences to share. And um, I'm finding that there's loads of people getting in touch with me now and wanting to be interviewed. So it's going really, really well. Where can people find your podcast? So people can find my podcast on Ozcast Network, which is a great uh, Australia's coolest podcasting network. And I'm also on Twitter and Stitcher and anywhere that you can find your podcast. Just search for Hong Kong Confidential. Thanks, Jules. My guest this week says they wanted to smell like life experience. Chris Urquhart is a writer based out of Toronto. When Chris was 22, they set off to follow young and often homeless teen and 20-something travelers across the United States telling their stories along the way. Urquhart went from rainbow gatherings to Burning Man festivals to punk houses and everything in between, meeting runaways and vagabonds all over the United States. Their stories are in Dirty Kids, Chasing Freedom with America's Nomads, Urquhart's first book. It's a good read, challenging at times, but powerful in the stories Chris tells. Here's their story. Why don't we start off with uh, a woman that you met, a young woman that you met early on in your adventures, uh, this woman named Dharma, and she tells you that success in traveling is about giving up your pillow. What did that mean to you? It's funny that you mentioned that quotation because I really see that as the core, the crux of the book. (laughs) Giving up your pillow to me meant giving up everything in your life that you use to distract yourself or keep yourself comfortable and yeah, putting yourself out there in a genuine sort of direct way. <laughs> so where, what, what sort of situation were you at in your life going into the early stages of this book? Uh, you were a student at McGill at the time. What was sort of your situation in life as you were getting into uh, meeting your first encounters with uh, these people who are nomads and people who are travelers and uh, people who are living life on the road? Yeah, so I started this book when I was at McGill, when we first went and started doing the field research, Keetra Kahana and I. Um, and we were both interested in ethnography and alternative representation and self-representation and all the conflicts and interesting bits inside these discussions. Uh, Keetra Kahana is an amazing photographer. So when we were at McGill... Instead of like hanging out, we would um, we would just do stories. So we we went to Coney Island, did a story about carnival workers, and we went and did a story about queer proms. So we just kept doing stories, and then we came across this New Mexico rainbow gathering in 2009, which was my first rainbow gathering, mm-hmm. and that's where we realized this wasn't just like an article; it was uh, a whole book. So. <laughs> <laughs> We we pursued it uh, over the next four, three, four years. Okay, so 2009, you go down to New Mexico for this rainbow gathering. 
what are your first impressions? You're you're pulling up, uh, you're hearing people calling out to each other, loving you. Uh, you don't really know what you're getting yourself into. What are you thinking? <laughs> I was completely overwhelmed when I first entered Rainbow Land. Um, a lot of people don't know a lot about it. I didn't know anything about it when I was going there, except a little bit of preliminary research. It was so <laughs> overwhelming. Uh, <laughs> sensory overload and just sort of like a bizarre, yeah, a bizarre sensory overload. I remember walking in and there was just people screaming, loving you, loving you. Everyone was just screaming at each other how much they loved each other. There were naked people everywhere. There was a topless woman riding a horse with a baby in a sling. There was just all this crazy <laughs> stuff happening. And I was just like, wow, <laughs> this is great. <laughs> Where did it go from being maybe apprehension or you know, seeing that and, and just pure sensory overload to exactly that uh, to I... I, I kind of like this or I, I kind of want to spend more time around this and, and get to know these people a bit more. When did you when did you start to, I guess, develop a fondness for for some of the characters that you would uh, spend the following years with? Yeah. So it was almost instant that I kind of fell in love with um, rainbow culture. It's very bizarre. <laughs> it's a <laughs> it's a very bizarre mix of a lot of different subcultures, and it's always changing and shifting and malleable. And um, so, as soon as I was around that, like as soon as I could, you know, meet people, and like as soon as I arrived in New Mexico, basically, I I knew that this was something positive and something I was going to be a part of. It was definitely the high point at the mm. beginning. <laughs> yeah, things got hard. <laughs> what was it about the the people that you were meeting? What was it about Rainbow Land and um, that sort of feeling of maybe independence? What was it that spoke to you and, and drew you in? So for the actual assignment, um, it was for an Italian magazine called Colors Magazine. And we had pitched that we were going to do a story about teenage runaways specifically uh, at the Rainbow Gatherings. Mm -hmm. So when we just started, we basically were hanging out and finding kids that were just a little younger than us or our age because 22 at the time teacher was 21 mm -hmm. um and just sort of basically we just sort of became friends we were always very transparent about what we were doing but you know they were all kind of interested in similar things to us you know uh anti-capitalist punks you know like musicians like all stuff we like so we kind of met on a friendship level and it just moved from there. Now, and that's interesting too, because uh, as you mentioned a lot more in the book as well, uh, there can be a bit of hesitation or apprehension from some of these people that you're profiling to be profiled or, or the fear that comes, I think, with any anyone who's a media type, right? And uh, someone mm -hmm. who, who wields the power of a microphone or a pen, um, that that apprehension of representation and how their their stories are being told. How much of that were you facing uh, when you were meeting these people and, and trying to uh, tell their story in a way that felt true, uh, but mm -hmm. but maybe the fear of being uh, called out as as not belonging? So we did get called out, uh, not as much as I expected, but sort of young uh, punk like kids. Everyone's calling everyone out, so you kind of have to expect <laughs> that to some extent. Um, what really worked for us is that we came into it first words were what we were doing you know like we came with examples of our work even we brought it to the rainbow gathering teachers photos mm -hmm. and we kind of 
had group discussions when we first were hanging out and people just kind of felt safe with us. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure why, but they knew that we wanted, they knew that we saw them as humans and we were genuinely interested in their particular voice. So I think people can tell. Yeah. So you're meeting these people, you're, you're getting their stories, uh, doing these, you know, pulling people aside and, and chatting and, and getting to hear about their lives, what's brought them to that point. What are the things that are sticking out to you? I mean, uh, from a very different upbringing, right? I mean, you, you speak about in the book, uh, growing up, you know, with, with stability and security and, and having those comforts of home, but then meeting mm-hmm. people who have more or less disowned their families or ran away mm-hmm. or maybe never had families to begin with. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what was it like to hear those stories and, and what were the things that jumped out to you? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the people that I ended up living and traveling with and interviewing, uh, were, were queer and LGBTQ, uh, identified a, as I am. And, uh, a lot of them were, uh, quote unquote, like hitting the road, uh, not because they had like basically because they'd been kicked out of mm-hmm. their family. And as much as I did have, you know, a, a conventional uh, upbringing, you know, my parents are school teachers, you know, we had summers and everything. I still know what it's like to be an outsider in a family mm-hmm. um, for those sort of reasons. So I think people could tell that, um, that I could relate to them on certain, you know, on a lot of things, really. So for you, was it, I mean, was it a sense of belonging? Did you find something in these people that you didn't find maybe before then? I think it was more like um, admiration. Mm-hmm. It was a sense of admiration mixed with the sense of belonging. It's not like I didn't have a friend group, you know, where I felt that I belonged, but mm-hmm. I hadn't encountered people living so rebelliously, so openly, so chaotically and sustainably. Uh, it was really such a an inspiration, you know, like I just didn't have that uh, reference point of these people, you know, they don't they're they're amazing. Like, I couldn't even. Yeah. <laughs> OK, so you go from from that first experience at Rainbow Land and you're doing that article uh, for Colors. Um, how does that progress from that one off article to then you and Keitra saying, no, you know, we want to keep on following these people and and telling more of these stories to, to, you know, to going on to the next gathering or going on to Burning Man. Mm -hmm. Um, How does that progress for you? So when we got back, uh, we published the article and it got a lot of good reviews. Um, Keitra's photo from it, I think, won uh, World Press and there was a lot of good um, feedback and we, most importantly, we, we really liked where it was going. Uh, at that point I was starting uh, my MFA, uh, in writing at university of British Columbia. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I was looking for a book length project and Keecher was, I think she was starting her MFA at the free university in Berlin in ethnography, photography studies. So mm-hmm. we were both in a place to kind of take on a full book well we thought we were you know (laughs) and uh, I remember I took the article to uh Greystone my publisher and I sold them the book (laughs) never do that it's a horrible idea 
never sell the book before it's written. <laughs> <laughs> but I was so excited, you know, I knew this would be a, I knew this was a, a book like project and one that I wanted to commit myself to for however many years it took. So right, you knew there was more to it there than however many words that first column was, right? Yeah, yeah. Had, they deserved more. Exactly. Uh, there's a, a great line that you have in this book, a couple sentences, and I think it really speaks to the appeal of traveling, uh, mm -hmm. but also the, the work that comes with traveling. Uh, you write that the road strips you down, it makes you calloused, it makes you infinitely independent, it makes you dirty, and it makes you free. Uh, what, what's the appeal about the road to you, and, and how did it change you in the time that you spent uh, pursuing these stories? So like, as I said, uh, I was raised in a really sedentary lifestyle. And when I met Kitra at McGill, I saw her family and they lived all over the world when she was growing up, you know, uh, I saw that that was a mode of existence for a lot of families. And at the time at McGill, I was studying um, nomadic pastoralists. So specifically looking at farming economies. And I just wanted to know how could I look at this phenomena from an outside lens, but in a place where I could understand the language, what was going on, and provide commentary. So it kind of all fell in line with that. Yeah. Now, between the time that you started this um, first experience in, in New Mexico, uh, the, you know, the things that did follow, whether it was more gatherings or Burning Man, uh, what, what exactly came next? What was the first... Uh, one after that that you went to the next the next gathering where you continued on telling these people's stories so the next gathering was pennsylvania yeah oh well i guess first we did i did go to burning man yeah. uh before and then the next rainbow that we went to was uh, pennsylvania i believe um so i had already had interest in burning man and i hadn't thought about including it in the manuscripts mm -hmm. then I kind of reevaluated that and and saw how they were connected and wanted to look at that um so no yeah it was already on my radar to go to Burning Man and then we just went and Keecher was there by random happenstance and we <laughs> met in the middle of the desert and that happens to us all the time though it's it's nuts like a few months ago I ended up seeing her at the end of my street and I was like <laughs> what <laughs> this happens to us every time Anyway, uh, sorry, what's your question? I'm, I'm kind of not, not the best uh, speaker, more of a writer here. <laughs> uh, so, well, it, well, it, well, actually, what you've said there has brought up another follow-up question. I think it's, it's very interesting to think about how different a rainbow gathering and a Burning Man can be, both things that maybe are striving after some of the same sorts of things. It's a, it's a sense of escape for people. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly Burning Man is, um, but but they go about it in a very different ways, or they look very differently. Um, the sorts of people that attend that might be very different. How did you mm -hmm. see the differences between uh, your experience at Rainbow Land and then going to the behemoth that is Burning Man and, and all of the lights and bells and whistles that go along with that? So burners, and that's what they call people that go to Burning Man, burners, mm -hmm. uh, they're generally an older crowd. They're a richer crowd. Um, there is some overlap, um, but generally the difference, I say, would be economic. Mm -hmm. um, you have to be able to afford to get to Burning Man, pay for a ticket to get in, stay at Burning Man, etc. Not to say some of my, you know, some of the people that I interviewed, they went to Burning Man. You know, tons of people have made it happen, but... It, 
it's not easy when there's a you know couple hundred price dollar price tag on no. it versus Rainbow, which is completely free and accessible. Um, so I, th- I would say that's the primary difference. And then obviously the setting <laughs> is a little different. Right, it's going from like a desert. national park forest to a uh, arid desert. Yeah, exactly. What yeah. about the the sense of belonging for you? How how did the people strike you? Were they were they different people that you were meeting at at Burning Man, the burners, compared to uh, the rainbows or the people who you'd see at rainbow gatherings? Yeah, I mean, like all travelers pretty much are freaks, I think. Generally, they're all <laughs> freaks. But uh, a lot of the travelers that, that go to Burning Man, they're just, it's a different, it's a different circle, largely. There's a lot more tech interest people, people interested in, um, uh, you know, large scale art installations. So there's a lot of art and that kind of stuff. And yeah, generally older it's just a di- it's a different vibe. I mean, they have sh- they share you know a lot of values at core, but they're just different people attend it, I guess. Did one feel more authentic than the other to you, or or are, is that kind of apples to oranges uh, as far as the experience of of going to one versus the other? Well, I'll say I liked Rainbow more conceptually. I mean, I don't like the the wasteful aspect of Burning Man. The like obsession with fire i mean i like it don't get me wrong but <laughs> i don't like it in terms of the long-term effects of what what it's actually saying yeah. you know rainbow was very um very on it when it came to returning the land back to its original formation uh burning man's about destruction right it's about destroying the world that we have created and there's a lot of fires like <laughs> it's nuts you know it's 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 mad max there's literally a thunderdome you know fire throwers everywhere you know you never seen anything like it so it's funny that they actually even have any similarities but at core you know it's 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 ideas like anti-capitalism and queer expression and there are you know there are similarities in what they believe but there's also more of a sort of like nihilistic like I don't know. Just, just <laughs> burn everything. Yeah, just like burn it down. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. pretty pretty metal. You went to uh, Ann Arbor and spent some time there in in a house living with a lot of other people. And part of that, you did a zombie walk where you had people coming up to you in the street and you know calling you disgusting point blank to your face mm-hmm. uh I, I think that that's an experience in itself just the being on the other side uh and, and seeing how some of these people are perceived had that been experience you'd had before or, or if not what was that like to uh kind of put yourself in the shoes of of these people and mm-hmm. and have such visible disgust kind of thrown right back at you um mm-hmm. in that way I hadn't had much experience with that. Um, I come from a relatively privileged standpoint, being a white female presenting person. So in terms of, you know, harassment on the street, I avoid it more than most people. Hmm. Um, But yeah, being on the street, being perceived as homeless, uh, people will yell at you, people will spit on you, uh, people will also take you out for dinner, and uh, they'll buy you things, you know, it's it's luck of the draw, really. But mm. a lot of people take their, their anger out on transients or, or people they see as homeless just because it so threatens them and they're so unhappy and they see these people pursuing whatever they're pursuing and they they, t- they take out their anger on them. You know, it's very common. A lot of people get spit on, yelled at every mm. day, you know. 
what do you think it is that that threatens people uh, about that experience? Well, I mean, I think these people are, you know, they're going home from their nine to five jobs to go like hang out and watch TV and drink Mountain Dew, you know, like they're bored and they're seeing people living differently than them, living without money, mm-hmm. not sharing the same consumerist values, uh, living outside the system that they've spent their whole life trying to fit into. I mean, I can understand why someone would be jealous, you know, Yeah. seeing them free like that, you know, like, yeah. Maybe maybe speak to happiness and the attitudes of the people that you met, because uh, you often you you are, you know, spending time with people who have, you know, very little financially, um, yeah. transient people who are kind of going from one gathering to the next, or or crashing on someone's couch and then going off to another city and, and doing the same thing, um, but then we have this perception of of what comfort means and what happiness means relative to you know, being able to afford a house and, and have mm-hmm. a job and, and have mm-hmm. all of these things. Uh, did you did you see happiness reflected in, in the people that you're meeting in a, in a way that kind of challenged that and, and made you think that happiness is is not necessarily exclusive to to what so often the conventions suggest? Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, well, hmm. It's hard. It's it's strange because I don't necessarily think that it was happiness, the mm. the feeling or the emotion that was uh, sort of present, omnipresent in these scenarios. It was more um, a, a truthful, a truthfulness, uh, truthfulness, and sort of an authenticity mm-hmm. of experience that I that I experienced more than happiness, because you're living extreme highs and extreme lows right so you're extremely you know because of the nature of the day-to-day you're put into these uh, you know absolutely ridiculous situations on the daily and so it was less about being happy um and more about realizing that you're more yourself when you're outside of these rules that you don't necessarily agree with You, you you're more genuine perhaps you're more open these were the sort of ideas I kind of, you know, played with when I was talking to a lot of these people. Tell me a little bit about your friendship with Kitra, because uh, that's a big part of the book, yeah. too. And the two of you being at McGill in this class, uh, I forget the name of the class, but but the professor was a, a bit of an interesting character, too. How, how was it yeah. that you two were brought together? So we met in Professor Norman Cornett's class. It was called Religion and the Arts, but it was basically the most unconventional seminar I took at McGill. Uh, McGill's pretty staunch and academic. And this class was basically, (laughs) it was insane. It was like every single class we had to listen to uh, Pink Floyd, Another Brick in the Wall. And we were all like, we all had to stand up and march along. So he was just this very, you know, wonderful, flamboyant, loving man who they actually ended up firing, which is a real shame. Uh But Um, So we were both in this class and uh, yeah, we just hit it off. We kept the class went to a lot of galleries, did a lot of field trips. So we we ended up spending a lot of time together uh, and she'd stay a lot with me on the Sabbath. And, you know, we just stayed at our apartment. So we ended up becoming really, really super close. uh, And we still are. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, part of this book seems to explore this, this, this recurring feeling like like maybe Kitra has, takes to the road more naturally than you do and kind of questioning yourself whether um, whether you belong in a, in a way that, you know, it, it feels like in your writing you're saying 
this is hard for me, but it seems to be so easy for her uh, to just endlessly go on and on on the road without feeling tired, without wanting to go home, without uh, wanting more of those comforts. Um, mm-hmm. what, what was that like in, in, um, and maybe how did that relationship with her change as you were continuing to go on the road and, and the tests that, that that brought to you? It's funny, when I reread parts of the book, um, I realized how hard I was on myself. Uh, I did give myself a hard time thinking, well, this is obviously easy for Kitra. She does this every day. She's not even tired. So there's something wrong with me. But it wasn't that we were necessarily even doing the same things, you know, like photographing someone is a lot different than interviewing someone. Mm -hmm. Um, The emotional impact of people disclosing, you know, abuse stories, you know, is different. You know, it's a different process. And that's not to take away anything from the photographic process. That's its own world. But I think now I realize we were actually together and partners, but doing different things. And I was just, I just admire her so much that (laughs) I just like, I just think she's the best. So I, you know, get a little like into that thinking, you know, it's not always good, but I just Uh, love her. She's yeah. a real model for me. <laughs> that That is another interesting point that you mentioned, though, because when you are hearing people and you're interviewing people who are uh, sharing what could be very traumatic experiences, that, that's a lot for you to take on then in, in hearing that and in processing that. Mm-hmm. Um, what did that bring up in, in your own feelings of, of having to hear these people tell stories of trauma to you? Yeah, this, uh, I didn't know what I was doing, right? I was 22. Mm-hmm. Really, really, you know, gung-ho sort of a party animal type of character. I mean, I'm 30 now, right? So I can kind of look back and see myself from a distance now. And I admire my, you know, vigor, but I didn't know how to take care of myself back then. And I really hadn't come to terms with a lot of my own trauma. So interviewing people about their trauma is even more difficult when you haven't processed your own, you know? Mm. Um, so since then, you know, I've, I've done a lot of development in Toronto and and dealt with that and healed from a lot of my own situations. So looking back, I think, whoa, like how did I sit through hours of interviews every day Mm -hmm. with these people, you know, disclosing such horrific things. And I think, I think basically I just turned off and just thought only about the person I was interviewing and that's what got me through it. That's not necessarily healthy, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's a there's words that end the book, and these are Keitra's words. But along that line, uh, she mentions how no one loses their inner demons by taking to the road. Mm-hmm. Um, how did those words speak to you? Yeah, I loved that quotation. That was from Keitra did a TED talk about um, about our experiences and about nomadic America. Uh, yeah, it it's hard, right? Because it's you, get, you go into the ideas of distraction, traveling for distraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you look at substance abuse and, and sort of running, running from demons is a, you know, it's a huge theme throughout the book. A lot of people do it. And that's why a lot of people are traveling, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of people are running from the law. A lot of people are running from their own issues. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's a huge element. Uh, that's really interesting and complex. Right, because often often people are taking on different names too, right? That you're that you're meeting. You're not necessarily meeting somebody as Justin or Jessica. You're meeting them uh, with different different angel nick- cat, right? And <laughs> names that they've adopted. And, yeah, yeah. 
which would probably yeah. suit them perhaps even better than their than their given names would be. But uh, but yeah, part of that <laughs> that that hiding or or running from something. Uh, mm-hmm. When did it go from being at first this this incredible high of of going on this experience and, and meeting these people to then the toll of the road and um, and realizing that you're tired and and you're dirty and you're hungry mm-hmm. or you just want a shower or a or a, a cooked meal that that is oh comfort foods or something what what when did that start to um, take its toll for you? I'd say even near the end of the first experience for me, mm-hmm. <laughs> I wouldn't have admitted it, but uh, I could feel it even then. Yeah. Uh, and I just kept pushing it throughout the whole thing because I thought I should be able to kind of do it. And frankly, I'm glad I pushed myself through it. You know, I did get it. I did commit to it, you know, mm-hmm. but um, it was it really, I mean, it wasn't easy, right? Like getting fungal infections and just like a lot of body stuff stuff happened you know and that can kind of throw you off a big time right (laughs) Um, not having you know consistent medical care which is a huge issue especially in the u.s right Mm -hmm. um and yeah just living in that way now could you tell me a bit about the the setup of especially like these rainbow gatherings and and Mm -hmm. part of the how they've developed a system for making sure that food is as clean as possible how they've set up the the so to speak toilet areas uh digging trenches and um and like the wash your hands part how how is that all that laid out um and what was that like to see that that sort of system that they've developed in in there to uh have a as successful an experience as possible Hmm. well these gatherings have been going on since like 1969 70 so they've got it down you know and it has happened every summer without fail since then a lot of people don't realize like how far back that this is an american tradition that 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 is so like has been happening for so long excuse me Mm -hmm. but yeah it's what i really am interested in with rainbow i think was that a community could get together like at the gathering i was at let's say twenty thousand people on you know crown land or not crown land but forest mm-hmm. land in the u.s mm-hmm. free land put together sanitation systems so they they would did, dig trenches put together kitchens they have like all of these protocols but it just made they had this whole society right it was all free and they it became nothing at the end so for me it was just really inspiring to see like a lot of people are I think disillusioned about the way our society is set up right now and it, I thought I think it was really uh, inspiring to see how you know actually easy it is to live in large settlements if you have the knowledge around sanitation and you know it's being done, you know, these people have been doing this for a long time. So that that's something that I really thought was cool about the gatherings. Well, yeah, that uh, that and Burning Man, too, I think similar ideas, right, where where you're creating a way of, of being as a civilization, a way of being together amongst people uh, out of nothing uh, and, and almost in an alternative model, right, of, of how we could live together. Um, exactly. But then the the flip side of that is going back into Babylon, as it's called in the book, and as it's referred to, uh, so, you know, common common life or, or the that nine to five or 
whatever is associated with Babylon, whether it's paying taxes or wearing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, clothes and, and doing the laundry and uh, cutting the grass, all those kinds of things. What is that like every time that you would go back and and see, you know, to go back to Babylon, so to speak, when you've just mm-hmm. had this experience of of seeing what it can be like uh, when people are uh, working together in a, in a kind of harmony? Mm-hmm. I think when you come back to, you know, our society, you see the holes a lot more and you mm-hmm. see the negatives and where things are working and how things have become kind of confusing and don't really make sense and we're all plugged in. And so it just kind of it going back and forth between the two really made me see the positives that what I needed for stability, as well as made the negatives of sedentary life a little bit more apparent, I guess, um, to me, at least. So when did the the book deal come along for you in this in this time period was it was it immediately after that first article was it did it take some time before that and the book deal and then how did that uh play out at, over the course of your travels uh that ended up in the book so i got the book deal i think my first year of my mfa so i i believe that was 2010 so it was a little bit after the article came out yeah um i had to bide my time to get it get an opportunity (laughs) to get into this office and pitch it. But um, I think, yeah, and then since then, I'm with Greystone Books. Mm -hmm. They, uh, for a a bit there, went under and went bankrupt. uh, Douglas and McIntyre and this whole branch of Canadian publishing. So I thought the book was done, right? Like for a couple of years there, we had no idea what was going on. And we just assumed it, you know, we... We didn't know what was happening. We mm-hmm. thought it was done. And then <laughs> I got a new, they got bought out by Heritage Group, and I got a new editor and everything. So it's been, I think, 10 years, you know, eight years, all in yeah. all, or whatever. I mean, yeah. it's a long, a long time. Um, but, I mean, that's how much you, that's the amount of time you, you kind of give to, like, any PhD or you know, anything of much value, I guess, takes time. But right. So, so how was the experience? I mean, uh, your first book, right, of of putting that together and um, and of having that that sort of looming over you as you're after you get the deal of, of thinking, okay, they they've signed on to this. Now I've got to deliver all these experiences and and put it to words. And um, what what was that like? Uh, well, when I was at UBC, it was perfect because that was kind of what we were trying to do. You know, we were mm-hmm. all out there getting content, writing our, you know, a huge community. And um, but after that, and when it when I finished my degree, I had my manuscript done, and all of this stuff started falling apart. It was it was it was horrible. I mean, it was heartbreaking, right? I didn't know what was happening. But this is the book industry. You don't get paid. You you wait you wait decades to see your work in print. Uh, people criticize you. You know it's not an easy industry. That's mm-hmm. not why we do it. You know it's like, but you know that's I guess that's just part of it. I think I think that part for me maybe maybe is what kind of tied into the experiences that you're describing in your book of of people uh, constantly traveling uh, of being almost. You, you're, you can always kind of be that one one step removed from ending up in that kind of situation where you're you're not really sure where you're going to get your next meal from or you're not really sure where where the next place you're going to rest your head is. Um, I think that that whole experience spoke to me maybe the most. And, and it was maybe a bit difficult in that sense to 
for me to read in being in that situation uh, in, as a quote unquote millennial and seeing seeing those kinds of secure jobs disappearing and seeing kind of that way of life disappearing and more and more uncertainty around where where that next contract or job is going to come from. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But then also, see, yeah, to, to see how people are have taken to the roads and, and it's appealing in one sense, that, that idea of escapism and the idea, mm-hmm. that idea of freedom, but also the the knowledge of everything that comes with that and uh, mm-hmm. of, of, of being stripped down and of, and of acquiring calluses and of being dirty and of, of mm-hmm. you know, putting yourself in, in really uh, precarious situations. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm really getting towards a question here, <laughs> more <laughs> rambling, uh, <laughs> but were you, were you feeling any of the same things as you were going through that experience, being in your early 20s as you started writing the book? Um, you know, going into a going into a master's degree, uh, but then also seeing, uh, I, I guess, being in a place in the world where, you know, some of that some of that precarity is out there, and not knowing where the jobs are going to be going forward, and and wondering uh, what what's going to come. So, like, what was my experience with the kind of how things are set up? And in... yeah, yeah. Well, I think you know, at the time that you, especially when you first started writing, that early twenties, it's a it's a it's a very pivotal time, I would say. Right, you you're, mm. you've completed your undergrad, uh, but you're you're kind of one foot in adolescence, where it feels like consequences aren't quite there yet. But then you have one foot into the uh, quote unquote Babylon or or the real world, uh, and right. of trying to establish a career and and all the kinds of things that come with that. Right. Um, yeah. As you're doing that, you're meeting all these people who have just totally either abandon that concept altogether or they never had the option in the first place and, and they're living mm-hmm. a totally different experience. Mm-hmm. You put all that together. Uh, how, how was that experience for you? <laughs> um, it makes me think like a lot about the uh, concept of choice in reference to like this sort of lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, some people do genuinely have the choice and have somewhere to go back to. That was my situation. Mm-hmm. Some people see it as a positive uh, alternative to what their reality is. So like, uh, in, when we were at the punk houses in Ann Arbor, one of the kids was saying, you know, like I had a choice. I could stay in rural wherever and become a meth addict, like my family, or I could, you know, hit the road and start traveling and live a different life altogether. So I had always been sort of, um, skeptical of, you know, quote the system. Let's say I was. <laughs> right. You know, I've worked at Adbusters. <laughs> uh-huh. I uh, I'm not down with the man, but you know what I mean. Like I, it was um, really eye opening to see that there is another alternative. That that's something that really sticks with me. Like there is somewhere to go where there is family and protection, and it's you know there are flaws with it. Obviously, it's not a utopia, but um, it gives you a lot of freedom to think that. You don't have to play these games, you know, like you don't have to participate necessarily if you don't want to in the nine to five, you know. What else sticks with you from from the time that you spent meeting these people uh, who are fascinating, uh, fascinating people with all kinds of incredible stories and uh, who are living such different lives uh, from experiencing what it can be like, uh, you know, living in discomfort and and of being called disgusting from you know sleeping on the ground and um all of the experiences that you had in in putting this book together um 
what are the things that you've kept with you, the takeaways that you that you carry on with you? I spent a lot of the trip um, recording the interviews. That was my primary focus. And I listened to those interviews so many times. So I really have a lot of voices, particularly voices of women, women of color, um, that I talk to, that I listen to the interviews so many times that they're still in my head. Mm-hmm. And just to have these examples of these young kids, you know, a lot of them are 16 years old, you know, and they've been through it and they're joyous and loving people that have made another life for themselves out of crap. And like just hearing their stories, knowing their stories, knowing their interviews by heart. Now I kind of have that. Uh, I have their voices in my head. Um, and it's a good thing. Do you think uh, a few years removed from it now, could you go back to that? Or or would you have uh, <laughs> no desire to uh, to forego, so, you know, to give up your pillow once again? I mean, I'm defi- I'd definitely probably go back to Burning Man. I'd probably go back to a gathering. I don't mm. know that I would do the work there. Like, I'd probably just go back as family, you know, as a participant instead yeah. of as a writer, you know? <laughs> <laughs> So I, I guess also the other question is, I mean, the nature of, of being in writing and, and of putting something out, of course, now that you've just put this out, the, the next question is, what do you, what's next for you? Do you have another, another idea in the works or another project in the works? Or what would you like to do next? Oh, yeah, you got to have you got to have two. But my thesis advisor, Andrea Schroeder, always told me you have to have two books going at once or else like none of them go <laughs> forward. So uh, I like writing on fiction. I like writing first person narrative. So I'm writing about my experiences in the Canadian mental health system right now, mm-hmm. which is a barrel of fun. Um, well, not right now, like my past experiences yeah, going yeah. through that growing up. Um, so looking at asylums and history of Toronto, that kind of stuff right now, it's still just developing it, but yeah. And some, also just working on articles, some political articles and, and whatnot. <laughs> Anything else that you want to share about, uh, about the experience that was, uh, that's contained within the pages of dirty kids. Um, other things that you, that speak out to you or, or even as simple as where people can find the book, maybe. For sure, yeah. You can find it on Amazon. It's available online. You can also contact me personally if you would like a signed copy. Um, yeah, just thank you so much for the the interest. This has been my life for, you know, almost a decade now. And it's, it's really satisfying to, you know, have people take interest in it. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you did enjoy the show, you can do me a favor and hit subscribe, leave a rating, and a review. Theme music for Story Untold is by Dr. Turtle, off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Next time on the show, find out what it's like to row across the Northwest Passage. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a Story Untold. See you next time. (music) 